BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Oh, tonight we got them. Goldie, the Sulk, and JC. And it starts right now. Oh, welcome back to another episode of A Typical Disgusting Display, a podcast for writers, by writers, who hate writing. Uh, we're excited to talk to Jay Caspi and Kang yes. today. Yes. That's going to be awesome. Uh, also, I just want to mention that next week we have Howard Stern, Mitch McConnell, <laughs> and Jeff Goldblum. How, you it's may true. ask, in yeah. one person, Matt Friend, yes. who's a hilarious comedian, and his impressions are insane. Oh, yeah. so, I, I yeah. kind of believed we were getting Howard Stern for a second. <laughs> no, sorry about that. I'm sorry, for, right. sorry friends. No, no, no. But it's Matt Friend. We're excited. Yes. And I think, yeah. you, I think you're going to find... Is it Matt Friend? Matt Friend, yeah. He's gonna, his Howard Stern is going to be great. He's great. I've heard we of could, him do stuff. We could cut up his audio bits as Howard Stern and just pretend like we had Howard Stern on yeah, here for, for future assets. Yeah. Goldie, I wanted to... I, I had texted you last night about this briefly, but we have... Uh, some guests here and it's actually uh, Scott Holroyd hmm. and his oh, family. Yeah. You know, he's a huge friend. We love him. He yes. made us that great ebook of all of our top five lists. Very nice. Yeah. So we went out to dinner Good last night at a place called the chat room, the chart room and uh, terrible food, great atmosphere. Like it's right on the water. And uh, so then the bill comes and we're doing that little dance that happens where we both have our credit card. And everyone right. knows you're paying. <laughs> so, <laughs> So we're, we're arguing back and forth. First joke yeah. of the day. First joke yeah, of the day. Yeah. Right. I'm sure that's the subtext. And this is, is, this I'll is just let like, the cat the out story. of the bag. And we, when we got, it's like, but he's going to pay, right? <laughs> and you know, you can prey upon my need to buy people to make that happen. Yeah. But so anyway, the bill comes. We both have our credit cards out. And there's the little argument back and forth. And, the, you know, them saying, no, you're hosting us so generous. No, you're our guests. We're... So we decide to rock, paper, scissors. Oh, for the nice. Bill. So we rock, paper, scissors. And like most guys who do it, we both do rock, you know, so it's a, <laughs> right. a draw. So oh, then I didn't know that. We go again. Yeah, remember that. Next time yeah. you go into rock, paper, scissors, <laughs> they always go paper because you're going to win 90% okay. of the time. So we did it again and I lost. I did, uh, I think I did scissors and he stayed. You with idiot. Rock. I know. <laughs> I, in retrospect, I was an idiot. So I lose, and then he's like, he he goes like, oh, okay, man, I, you're, you're stuck with the bill. 
And so then I, I pay the bill. And as I'm paying, I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute. We both wanted to pay this bill. And then I lost at Rock, Paper, Scissors. Shouldn't he be paying that bill? Like That's you, what I was you, thinking. And then, so I called him on it, you know, just jokingly. We were laughing about it. And we realized in a very curb your enthusiasm way, this is a genius way to get out of any bill is you can rock, paper, scissors for it. And whatever the result is, you can just bluff your way into the other person paying. That's true. That like, is great. It is. Yeah. It's like that. that's going to yes. be a great thing from now on. Just rock, paper, scissoring and then just instantly saying like, OK, I'll get next one. You know, you know I had a really similar idea this week. Not similar, but you'll see. Yeah. So I was I was on the strike line with Brian Kiley. He's a very funny yes. comedian and writer. We'll have him on at some point, but he's hilarious. He started we started talking and, you know, we've talked on this podcast about how, of course, like it, it, we have trouble getting our kids to do anything. Of course, we we never hit them and we wouldn't. But yeah. like <laughs> without the threat of that, you know, fear does the work of reason. So without the fear, like how how do you get them to do it? So. He, we were talking and he said that when he was a parent, of course, he never hit his kids either, but he was at the playground one day and a parent just furiously beat their kid in front of him and his kids. And so then his kids were like, oh my God, that can happen. And and then he didn't even have to beat his kids. Right. right. So then I had this idea. There are a lot of out of work actors right now yes. i see where this is yes. going I so what if we <laughs> offered a service where you would sign up and an actor and a stunt kid would come to the playground where you were with your kids <laughs> and then the actor would just beat the shit out of the stunt kid in front of your kids suit padded oh he's suit. a stunt kid he yeah, knows yeah. how not to get oh, hurt right, there's right, no right. padded suit but this fall. is an out of work stunt kid this is a kid who has been groomed are there stunt kids yeah, they have so They've been groomed to absorb the impact. So then this actor beats up a stunt kid in front of your kid. It, it employs these people who are SAG. We pay SAG rates. Yep. And then you never have to hit your kids. And then your kids know what a good person you are. I love this. Uh, We've come up with two great yes. schemes here yeah. in this podcast already. <laughs> a very useful public service. Goldie, this reminds me of, uh, remind the folks, you're the, what I always thought was so hilarious, this service you proposed uh, when you're traveling with your family at the airport. Oh, oh, OK. <laughs> so basically someone and, and they, they actually work for the airlines. The airline charges a premium for this. For this service. Is, yes. Is that they they tell you you can't sit with your family and they make it look like a big accident. And they're like, <laughs> I'm sorry, sir. We just can't you. We have to move you because of the cargo. And so that. Your spouse ends up with your kids on this like, <laughs> transcontinental flight and you're, you know, in a totally different seat by yourself. And it's like, I'm so sorry, honey. There's yeah. nothing to be done. Yeah. And you, you've paid eight hundred dollars. And, and I loved you used to add at the time when you talked about this, that you would also part of it could be like a hilarious fake fight that you have with the attendant at the desk oh. who's giving you this news yeah you yeah. said you listen i want to talk to your boss they bring yeah. out a second person and you say you know so elaborate. how dare you yeah. my wife you know who's been on this airline 80 sometimes i'm so sorry they give you fake extra upgrades on things that you prepaid that they're like the yeah. next time you fly she'll be first class and you're like whatever you've put like twenty five hundred dollars in this it doesn't matter the point is it's brilliant you don't have to sit with your kids on these this are, flight these are all great ideas so funny 
Um, all right, let's get to something slightly less funny. Let's get in <laughs> to Johnny jokes. From Hollywood, here's Johnny. Here we go. Uh, well, maybe you heard about this. After a protracted legal dispute, Hunter Biden has reached a plea deal with the DOJ. Never missing a political opportunity, Mitch McConnell was quoted as saying, <laughs> Well then. There's a great rumor that he shat his pants and then became <laughs> fight or flight and had no idea what to do. Oh, wow. I love that. Love that rumor. Yeah. That's a good one. Uh, here's a second joke. A uh, city in Japan has apologized after saying pregnant women should shop, cook, and give their husbands massages. Uh, in the statement issued by the city's mayor, he apologized for not including laundry. Oh. <laughs> Forgot laundry. That's a good Johnny joke. Uh, thank you, That's sir. True. These are for Johnny Carson in the Johnny. 70s and 80s. Right. Yes, not, not now. <laughs> now. <laughs> Don't judge him now. Uh, but speaking of now, here's a Gutfeld. All right. Oh, Ooh. boy, here's a Gutfeld. Well, Kanye West had his Twitter account suspended a mere two hours after his previous suspension had ended. Yeah. Uh, apparently, he tweeted that Barbie was just pretty good. Oh. That's solid. <laughs> solid. That's solid. You know, it didn't have to be a gut felt. <laughs> oh, it didn't? I think that works. I think that's a Johnny. <laughs> All right. I, I, I take it back. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Johnny. I took the words out of your mouth. And now I get to end on this dud. Here we go. Uh, doctors at Mass General Hospital in Boston have released a new study that shows a connection between cardiac episodes and flatulence. You can read all about it in their article entitled Hats and Fats. <laughs> Johnny, too, take that it away. That was a good batch this week. Yeah. Oh, thank you, sir. I, I want to pat you on the front. <laughs> <laughs> you've, always, you've always had my front, and I appreciate that. I do. That. I do. Okay. <laughs> well, this week... Phoenix, Arizona broke every record for heat in its entire history, and Republicans there are demanding a temperature recount. <laughs> it's fine. Oh, nice. <laughs> well, uh, President Biden is on vacation at the beach. Yeah, uh, he says it's relaxing to take a week and just fall on sand. <laughs> <laughs> You've cultivated something with this. I, I love it. I love yeah. it. Uh, tabloids say Prince Harry and Meghan Markle may soon be headed for a divorce. Uh, the couple has recently been going to bed without the traditional British goodnight handshake. <laughs> oh, that's, they're in trouble. Okay. <laughs> this week is, they're not great. I acknowledge this. Disagree. Disagree. Uh, well, this is some sad news. Uh, the world's oldest man died at 127. <laughs> yeah, uh, too bad he just matched on Hinge with Diane Feinstein. <laughs> and finally, there we go. An Air Force pilot at a congressional hearing confirmed the government has recovered non-human bodies from a UFO crash. Yeah, uh, apparently the aliens swerved to avoid Anne Heche. <laughs> 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 yes. Oh, it's a great closer. Great. So I am 
incredibly excited for today's guests uh, because we've had so many TV writers on, and we all know that these are not real writers. <laughs> these are fake writers. They, yep. they sit in a room with other people, and they like waste a bunch of time, and then they come up with something that they think is good enough to get by. They hand it in, and then they make it. But this individual is an author. Yes. Yeah. A journalist. Ooh. A New Yorker writer. An NPR correspondent, yes. a Twitter gadfly, and I, I would describe him as a our generation's public intellectual. That growing up, there were these people nice. like Gore Vidal, Truman Capote, Gloria Steinem, who were authors and in the public consciousness. So, please welcome Jay Caspian Kang. Yay! Yeah. Thank you so much for being to be here. So I'm I'm a giant fan of yours, and I. I I first became aware of you from an essay you wrote called the, the High is Always the Pain and the Pain is Always the High about gambling. Is this, is this how most people, like Kang fans, find you, or is it more the entry point for people my age? Or uh, Yeah, I think earlier on, probably, right? Um, and for many years, I think, yeah, that was... If people... It's very rare, but if somebody reaches out or through email or um, even occasionally we'll uh, say hello in the streets or something. That's, I don't know, that happens very infrequently. But <laughs> it's usually to talk about that essay. Um, so was it your yeah. first real breakout success? And for those who haven't read it, you should. And uh, for those who, just in brief, it's sort of about uh, an epic gambling jag and the ups and downs of that and the psychology behind that. Um, and I was wondering, as... You were writing this, as this was happening to you, were you cultivating in some part of your brain, like, finally something worth writing about is happening to me, <laughs> and I can be Kerouac, I can be Allen Ginsberg, that, 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 or were you just sort of in the thrall of a gambling addiction? Uh, I mean, I have, the gambling addiction part has been pretty constant since I was, uh, I don't know, in middle school or something like that, but I think it's a, it's an interesting question. I haven't really thought about it very much, but when you asked, I sort of instantly thought, oh, of course, that's kind of what was happening, because <laughs> I had left, um, when I started playing, I was just out of college. I went to college in Maine, and I grew up in North Carolina, and I moved to uh, New York City to become a writer at the age of like 22 or whatever, and I was excited and I had this whole vision for myself, and then I was realized that I was like mostly sitting in class and going to the same bar with, uh, you know, kind of fiction nerdy people who I love. But it was definitely not the kind of you know sow your oats and uh, like uh, go to parties and you know live on live in a garret somewhere type of uh, <laughs> like Celine type of existence that I was that I was hoping for, and so. Yeah, maybe that's why I was seeking out all these poker rooms, right? Like, uh, <laughs> right. You like walk up a couple stairways and then you have, you know, there's some guy there and there's a big curtain on all the windows and then you go inside and it feels glamorous in a type of way. So yeah, maybe that yeah, was it. Exciting. Was there ever a part when gambling was going well for you when you thought like early on, I know some people when online poker became a thing, it was like, well, I can just do this professionally. Right. I'll make nine million. I'll never have to work. Then I'll be a writer. Was <laughs> that in play? Yeah. Yeah. I thought, uh, you know, 2003, 2004, 2005, that was the big poker boom. And there are a lot of really bad players. If you just knew basic 
probability, you felt like you had an edge, but you know, obviously you probably didn't because you were probably bad too, right? Not you, but you know, one. And, um, but like you could feel like you were smarter than the other players because the other players were so stupid, you know? And <laughs> now it's like the opposite where I, you know, I still play from time to time and I end up, I, you know, I like watch YouTube videos and stuff like that. And the concepts are so advanced now that it, you know, it makes you feel incredibly dumb. And it's right. almost like you, you can't just read a couple books and do it. But back then, there was a way to trick yourself into thinking that whatever edge you had could lead to a living. And that yeah. was, that was always the illusion. Um, it's not that the illusion isn't that you're better than the worst player at the table. That's probably true. The illusion is that, you know, over time, whatever edge you have is going to result in a stable income for you um, that yeah. can lead you to like play up and up and up until at some point you're, you know, one of these superstars like that, that part is, you know, mostly luck. It's not, what was the highest I you see. ever got? Did you do the world series of poker or any of that? Uh, no, I never played many tournaments, but I think I, you know, there are a couple of times in LA where I was playing, pretty big and cash games at, you know, the local casinos there. I'm sure that you get like the commerce or the bike. Those are the two that I went to the most. But, you know, it's not, nothing ever beyond kind of normal swings for a player like me, uh, which, you know, you go up a lot sometimes and then you go down. But yeah. slowly you go down. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, they tend to take over. tend to have extremely volatile swings and most things in my life. And so that was also true of poker. And so, yeah, there were a couple of times where, you know, I had more money than I, not that I knew what to do with, but like, you know, at the age of 24, 25, um, someone who's used to having like $500 in their bank account suddenly has, I don't know, like twelve, fifteen thousand $15,000 in chips. And you look down and you're like, oh, wow, like, yeah. what should I do now? Right? Like those, <laughs> yeah. but it was never anything like I, I had like hundreds of thousands of dollars, you right, know, right. Stuffed in like my glove compartment or something like that. Well, you, <laughs> right. you glossed over like I went to grad school in New York. You went to Columbia. Right. You and I both went to Columbia. Right. I was undergrad. Um, and one of the things I remember was you get there, you're in the middle of Manhattan, and it occurred to me on the second day, oh, I'm broke. I have no money, <laughs> and I'm in the middle of New York City. And you you had this passage in your book, and it this makes me think you're maybe you're secretly a comedy writer and you just i mean you are a comedy writer there's humor in your writing but i mean like i'm part of this is i'm trying to recruit you to just come to la and do this and <laughs> this will be the gambling payout that you you will realize it in this fashion but it's this meticulously observed passage from your book of going to an art gallery you're in these clothes these dress clothes right you say you feel like a fraud and that maybe there's some irony in that you're dressing up as your oppressors, right? which I, that was hilarious to me. And then you drop the detail that this art gallery is in part owned by your friend who you think in retrospect you were in love with, totally related to that. And then partially by Michael Portnoy, who is like a ridiculous person who wrote Soy Bomb on his chest and interrupted the Grammys. Right, Bob Dylan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, then you go to this gallery, and of course, all you can do is say hi to the one person you know. You say you ordered a vodka soda because that was the, what the person in front of you ordered, <laughs> and you had no ideas. And then you went to a bar, and you freaked out. So 
you really didn't have this sense of belonging, it seems to me. And maybe that this is something that you've been chasing. Um, like, <laughs> yeah. As, yeah. you know, as, sure. as, as a writer, do you think that this is what propels you and allows you to keep writing is this lack of sense of belonging? Or do you think like you would trade it all to just be able to put on the fucking clothes, feel normal, like Alec, go to the gallery, <laughs> throw your arm around someone and have a good time? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a very good question. I mean, this is deeper psychologically than I thought, but yeah, you know, all writers, I think, are, have a certain discomfort. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then you, it leads to spite and then you <laughs> sort of say, I'll show them. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then yeah. that kind of compels you forward. Uh, I've worked at a unusual amount of different publications in the media and I tend to just work there for a couple of years and then I go somewhere else. And, um, yeah, I think that is probably driven by a sense of, uh, you know, I look around sometimes and I'm like, who the fuck are these people? You know? <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I'm like, yeah. These aren't my people. And I think about it and I'm like, well, I did go to Columbia and, um, <laughs> you know, I've been working in this industry for basically my entire adult life. What am I talking about? You know, but then I still yeah. feel it. And then I'm like, fuck these people. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'm the same way in TV <laughs> yeah. and I've, I've, Oh, you know. Goldie, you belong. You belong. <laughs> but every time us. I get somewhere and it gets comfortable, I, I like I alienate. I'm less as I get older, like I and I have more psychology and more self realization. But <laughs> yeah, I had a question, like, Goldie. Yeah, if I could jump in here uh, for Jay. So when Goldie was was reading uh, your intro and obviously in the in the stuff that I've read about you and and. Um, I read your fantastic article that was, it sounds like it was written on like day 10 of Lynn Sanity, that um, question of identity, which was an amazing article. So something I noticed in that, and I wondered if this has carried forward into your professional career, you had that chilling moment in that article where you described you guys are in this fun softball league, you used to make up these very kind of race-based nicknames for yourself that you would put on your jersey. And you're stepping up to the plate, and one of your, as you refer to him, your friends, shouts out this very cutting remark uh, to you that still sounded like it, it, it affected you uh, up till the time of the writing. I yeah. wondered if, if going forward from that, because that's a relatable, like as, as a Jew, like that happens sometimes, and you don't forget those things weirdly. And as much as I, like you, would make fun of myself and be self-deprecating when you hear it, coming in from another side it can be much more cutting i wondered if going forward you've worked you know grantland and uh new york times and like all these places do you still feel like when you walk into those jobs that people are looking at you in that way and sort of saying like okay now we've got our asian writer here. <laughs> that's an interesting question yeah <laughs> i don't think i think about it in terms of the social aspect when i walk into a room anymore but you get it you get a sense of it um i don't know i was giving a sort of one of these talks recently to a group of korean american surgeons right like this is some they had some event and i went i they asked me to speak at it and you know i went and i thought about it and they asked me a, a similar question and i you know, it kind of comes down to what you're assigned and then you start to feel it, right? And um, you, I'm sure it happens in your industry a lot, right? Which is just that 
hey, uh, we need this Asian thing is happening. So why don't we mm -hmm. uh, have this guy do it? Yep. And a lot of times, like the match is really bad, especially for, you know, Asian Americans, I think, because like, you know, the term doesn't really mean anything. Right. So they could say, hey, mm -hmm. something's happening. in Hong Kong. Do you I, I got assigned this early in my career where <laughs> an editor was like, do you want to go to Hong Kong and write about you know, cowboy capitalism. I was like, I don't know what you know, any of those words that. mean. <laughs> like, <laughs> I didn't even know Hong Kong was an island. You know? right. I thought it was like exactly. in the middle of China or something like that. I was, totally. like, I was like 30 years old. I was like, what's, I don't know where Hong Kong is actually. If you asked me to point out a map, I would like vaguely gesture towards Asia. You know, I'd be like, I don't know, it's over there. Um, yes, but right. that sort of thing keeps happening. And there's like, you know, you can be mad about it, but it's sort of, I think the wrong thing to do is run the other way, which I think a lot of people do, right? Where you just sort of deny yourself any type of connection right. in that, in those terms to your work. And that what you end up doing is you aggressively do the opposite. And that's like, I think that's limiting. And it's kind of sad when I see people doing it, but I understand why they're doing it because like they're mad that they're being asked to do all the X stories and then they say well why can't I if the white guy gets to do this right and can just be like him then why do I have to be attached to this identity thing where like I don't like David Chang said it recently I think he said like uh you know I just want to be thought of as a chef not as a chef who does Asian food or something like that yeah. I think yeah. for David obviously like he is a chef it's not like he's shying away from that type of thing but I understand his impulse there and I think it can result sometimes in people really kind of limiting themselves. And so um, at some point I felt that way very strongly, like I'm just going to do reported stories and I'm going to be the best reporter. And mm -hmm. um, like, that's like an actual thing, a reporter thing. I'm not leaning into any advantage I might have because of my identity. But um, yeah. after a while, like, you know, like you just, you're like, well, I do kind of want to write about people that I'm familiar with. Um, yeah. And also like, some of this stuff is really boring that I'm, <laughs> that I'm that you're covering. You know? <laughs> right. And like, like what, what's, what's the end goal? Is that like, you know, you solve racism by like <laughs> being, you know, like, oh, look at that guy. He's, you know, like, who are you doing that for? I think all those right. questions come up. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, back to the David Chang comments and, and, and what you just said, I, I feel like there was this perception in the 90s when I went to college and diversity, you never heard about diversity in the 80s. Like, I, I don't think anyone said the word. Uh, but when I went to college in 1991, you know, a few things were at play. One was like, you're going to be in a diverse environment. Like, we've assembled these people. And the idea was like, like what they say at Pixar, like, you're going to cross-pollinate. You're going to, you know, meet each other on the quad and come up with these incredible revelations. But then you get there, and the second day, there's a fair, and it's like, here's the Jewish student union, here's the Asian student union, here's yeah. the black student union, and then everyone just kind of goes off on yeah. their own. Yeah. And you have a, a really interesting passage in your book about your relationship with the Korean student union mm -hmm. and this yeah. basketball game. Can you just talk about this for a second? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I found this not... both fascinating, hilarious... And so demonstrative of the writer persona of just creating a situation for yourself. Yeah, it was is difficult. I I didn't, you know, I got to college and I was very interested in, um, you know, I thought of myself as very radical in my politics. And both of them were sort of centered around 
black liberation and ideas of social justice in that sort of way. I think it would be called social justice now, but for me, it was really just trying to understand the criminal justice system and um, mostly criminal justice system stuff, right, in high school. That was sort of my main thing that I got into. And I got to college and there's tiny, tiny, I mean, it's, you know, Bowdoin College in Maine. It's 1,500 students in, you know, coastal Maine. It's not a lot of Asian students. (laughs) And so there's like, I think there's like 12 Korean students, 20 Korean students, something like that. And they're part of Korean American Student Association. And uh, because I was Korean, they invited me to join. And at the time, like I was, you know, trying to find weed and uh, (laughs) Korean guys had that. And I think I was probably a little bit too, um, you know, I was like a bad, I was like a bad drug customer, you know, like when (laughs) you kind of just make it all transactional and you kind (laughs) of act like the person is almost imposing on you. You right. know, like there's a, like I, it was like, that's what I'm most embarrassed in the story about is that like, like I was like such a shitty customer, you know, like it was just like, like I would just go and buy and then I would leave, you know, and it's like, yes. the, I'm sure it made him feel bad. Right. And so, um, and there's no reason for that. Like I actually liked the guy. I was just like kind of being like a sketchy 18 year old dickhead, you know? And so, um, they they got kind of mad at it and I didn't want to join this organization because for me it was like, well, you know, I don't, I'm not that interested in Korean American stuff and I don't actually really want to only hang out with the Korean students on campus. I want to do other things. And so then they got mad at me and then we had this intramural basketball game and they showed up, the Korean students had a team, they kind of showed up pretty drunk and then they, tr- they tried to fight me and it was like this... <laughs> Like they threw the ball at my head and they kind of shoved me into the, into the wall of the gym. And, um, you know, I think back on it and like, you know, everyone at that school at that time, it's more diverse now, but at the time, pretty much everyone had gone to like Chote or Deerfield, one of these New England boarding schools. And there was a lot of people in the gym and they were like, kind of, I just imagine what they would see when they saw like five Korean dudes (laughs) fighting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it just felt like a movie scene of like the, yeah. the assembled highlight reel, the music of you getting hard fouled and like yeah, yeah. driving to the basket and going around picks and getting leveled. And yeah, yeah, it, it, you painted what a, a great picture of it. <laughs> what a weird uh, time. But then they called me and we kind of made up. And now some of them are, you know, like I, I still talk to one of them actually is a friend of mine. Um, and over time, you know, like all of that softened too. But yeah, at that time, I think it was really, I think if somebody was looking at it, they would say, oh, he was ashamed or he, you know, was trying to deny all these things. Maybe some of that is true. But really, I think it was more that you get to college and you kind of, especially at such a small place, it felt like the kids there were felt like pretty isolated and that's why they needed it. and I understood that you know like I understood that yeah. but for me I felt like I was more interested in actually trying to make the experience there work and maybe that was naive I mean I didn't end up finishing my degree there and I failed out once and got kicked out once and so obviously something was wrong yeah <laughs> right. well you kind of gloss over this in in your book that you yeah. and I was I wanted to ask about it you you say uh, like you're you're writing about it something else, and then you say, you know, and then I ended up in a halfway house for three days, uh, and I talked to this this other guy, and then uh, my right. parents came and gave me some beef jerky and left. But 
like what i mean what happened it's, it's did you in high school just sort of like you said you went to your parents and said i think i'm going crazy and your dad just said you're not yeah you can't see a college psychologist deal with it like Looking back on that, I mean, it worked. You're a successful person, but do you think he did the right thing? Or <laughs> this, is, this is crazy. These are not. I don't have a therapist, but you know, maybe I'll just think about it that way. Um, that's also instructive, I think. Yeah, I don't know if it worked, but it was a. You know what it was was it was sort of this immigrant mentality that um, uh, that that mental health services in the United States are all nonsense and they make you soft you know right. and yeah. um and i don't think that's relegated just to immigrants but i think it's pretty prevalent in a lot of immigrant households and that one shouldn't complain about things they should just learn how to deal with stuff and uh i think it makes you very tough right and resilient it also sort of makes you unable to deal with problems except by ignoring them yeah you know just suppress it goes away <laughs> I think that's what we were taught, which is just that like, hey, things bad happen and then you just suppress it and it goes away. This whole lie like, oh, it pops up later. <laughs> yeah. That's just a lie. <laughs> right. And then I thought I think about it now <laughs> and 90 percent of the time I quietly think that's correct. You know, like yeah. actually everyone else is lying about <laughs> the fact that it pops back up. They're just saying that because they want to sort of soak in a type of misery. Yeah. But then 10 percent of the time I think, oh, no, I should probably deal with some of this stuff, you know, <laughs> but uh, it has been a pretty constant coping mechanism, for wow, me, which is that I just kind of forget about things yeah. and then I just move on. You're, you know, you're, um, your answers yeah. are so fantastic, like to these questions and what I'm struck by with some of the questions we've asked you and your instant reaction to the questions is like, you have this kind of almost like you're laughing at, at the, the question and not knowing the answer right away. And I think that's really interesting that you have this outlook of like, cause I think a lot of people like to portray themselves when they're asked a question, they're like, I better have this answer and I better kind of know myself a hundred percent to like give you what you want to hear. But do you think part of what feeds into your writing is this sort of style of yours that I've noticed of like, you really take things in and you don't, you don't necessarily know the answer to it right away, but you have to like kind of mull it over in your mind. And maybe that turns into prose. Yeah, I feel, uh, I thought about this recently or a couple of years ago, I thought about it because, you know, I was writing um, twice a week for the New York Times and, um, it was, you know, I was writing this newsletter and it was, they had done a lot of promotion for it and enough promotion where I started to feel a little bit uncomfortable, not with the, <laughs> not because I was uncomfortable. I was happy that they're promoting it, but I was like, this is like a platform and size of audience that I'm not actually used to, right? Like magazine yeah. stories, like you either, either a lot of people read them or only other magazine people read them, but like it's not attached to you. It was like my face was on the New York Times homepage twice a week, and that was weird for me. You wow. know? Yeah. yeah. And I thought about it, and I was like, uh, I am not very well suited to be an opinion writer because I have I feel deeply ambivalent about almost everything. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like I don't really have very strong opinions. What I do is I kind of take an idea and then I like read about it and then I flip it over a couple times, and in the end you know, half the time I just kind of shrug and be like, eh, I don't know, you know, <laughs> and that it felt like I was, that was not well suited to somebody like that. And that my main qualification for this job 
was that I could write really fast, you know, and that was like my, and I was like, it is very strange that like basically in America that we've commentary and the people who are sort of writing for these big outlets, the main thing that they do is they write really fast, right? Otherwise you can't write twice a week. It's impossible. You have to write really fast. Yeah. And that, um, <laughs> that we sort of seated, right? There's no expertise there. It's, and it's not even like who is the best thinker. It's like almost a combination of who can write fast and engagingly and sort of get to about 70% of an expert opinion on something and then kind of provocatively ask that question. That seemed like the job to me. Yeah. And so um, I actually thought in the end, and the reason why I like continue to write quite frequently was because I think I came to this conclusion that actually it was okay to be really ambivalent about most things um, because I think the readers are probably pretty ambivalent about a lot of stuff too. And that if you have a certain hard doctrinaire way of thinking about things or you feel like you have to ascribe to like, you know, a um, a certain political ideology down the line, then it's really boring to do that job over and over again. You just sit and you're basically just typing. Um, But yeah, I I think my main calling card for that was uh, they would always ask me, like, how do you want to promote this thing? What do you think the hook is? And I'd always be like, well, I don't know, you know. Like, so <laughs> you promote it. That's the your most job. ambivalent. <laughs> <laughs> but there's sort of a like a built-in indictment of the whole system with ambivalence, which is you're going right. like the easy thing would be to just say this or this, but right. I, you know, but I, I want to disagree with you about yourself that you you don't have opinions because I'm a big follower of your Twitter. And part of the joy of your Twitter is you dig in on certain things that are very like minor things and i'm i want to run some by you and get some quick takes and then i have things that i want to see if you have quick takes on so can you tell us and briefly you have a a real problem with the brand of clothing arc directs (laughs) yeah but i own some yeah (laughs) so do i yeah what is this brand no i you know this is like a thing that i know i've lived in the bay area for a long time well it's only three years this time but before there you know in my uh, late 20s early 30s i lived here too um I would just notice that there's like, I'm really fascinated with like what I call like a perform- performance outdoor gear. And um, I've, I've always been, uh, my joke has always been to my friend that I grew up with is that we should start a performance, you know, outdoor gear thing because I feel like I've learned all the tricks, right? Like you just put like a little bit of rubber on the outside of the zipper and then you can charge like $250 that, that more. But yeah. And then, um, it always, um, the thing is that I, you know, as a hypocrite also spend a lot of money on this stupid stuff. Like I, <laughs> I like I bought a bag for the beach that was like, um, like, I don't know, it was like $110 and it's like basically a tote bag. Like I could have gotten free with the <laughs> yeah. NPR subscription. I just bought <laughs> <Right>. it because <laughs> like I, I didn't even look at the actual, you know, features it had. I was just like, that must have really cool features. And I opened it up <laughs> after I bought it. And I was like, this, this is a normal bag. But yeah, I think it's a, it's such a, it's a way of sort of uh, public consumption or, you know, like outward facing consumption that I think is like, kind of signals something very interesting to me which is uh you know like i'm not gonna buy like uh you know sneakers or i'm not gonna buy designer brands but i'm gonna invest just as much money on this sort of functionality thing that you know and all the functionality is completely useless unless you're like in you know on everest or something like that um, i don't know it's really worked on me though so yeah my 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 trolling of it is out of a self 
type of self-awareness. Like, There's yeah. this Vanity Fair article that just came out a, a few months ago, David Zaslov, the, the Max guy. And one of the details is uh, Steven Spielberg says, you know, he's just a regular guy. Like, he just wears Patagonia vests. It's <laughs> sort of like building up that he would understand the common man. Right. He, he knows what America wants because he dresses down. Yeah. Uh, he wears Patagonia. So, Next topic I've, I'm fascinated with, your fascination with, is conversion vans. Oh, yeah, I have one, yeah. Oh, you to have fit, one now? Yeah, Because before you with... were saying the market was going to implode and you yeah. were waiting and well, you were tweeting about this all I didn't the time. Wait, I didn't wait long enough because the market kind of is imploding right now. But, yeah, the, <laughs> oh. uh, and I, I, I ended up buying at the top of the market because I got too impatient. But, um, <laughs> yeah, there's a I, – I, I grew up camping quite a bit. I don't really camp very much, but, you know, it's something that my family did and my sister and my father and parents do quite a bit. I think my parents probably spend, they have one, they spend probably like 50 nights a year in it, you know, like 60 nights a year in it. And it's a lot. They drive all around the the West, the West and go to national parks and stuff. How many nights a year are you spending? Four, <laughs> yeah. more than zero. Yeah. More than if you zero. if you equal it out to like what a hotel stay would be, you know, it's like staying in literally the most expensive hotel in in the, in, in America. But um, did you trick yeah, it out? I, uh, yeah, I I am in the process of putting in a bunch of stuff, and it's the same thing. It's just cool. useless gear, um, and you put it in, and then you see it's uh it's so far it's the main thing that it's done is it's sort of uh it's like a magnet for a certain type of dude <laughs> Congratulations. yeah mid 40s um who looks like they have like a somewhat large amount of disposable income right. and they're not really working you know it's like that type of guy and yeah. they walk up and they're like bro sweet that's yeah vain. like the, you know, the model and everything <laughs> right right they're like can i see inside you know that's what they always say is like can, can i see inside and <laughs> that's how i met my wife <laughs> right. it's amazingly flattering for me you know it's a great <laughs> feeling i'm just yeah. like yes you can you know would you like would you like a tour of my that's, that's a form of amortization that's sort of amortizing <laughs> right Right, exactly. Just the exactly. It's it's uh, it, I'm not paying for therapy because right. every time I go, every time I go play tennis, one of the guys walking out the court's like, "Bro, that face." <laughs> yeah, like, yes. <laughs> so every time this this conservative uh, podcaster Ben Shapiro comes up, you have a take on him. You point out that just is such a total indictment of his personality. Uh, can you explain, please? Oh, yeah. Ben Shapiro grew up in Los Angeles uh, in the 80s, late 80s, 90s, and he is a Celtics fan, which to me is like, <laughs> everyone's seen uh, Do the Right Thing and everything like that, but I just feel like it must be a specific type of contrarian dude who does that, you know? Right. Or, um, like you have, and somebody who kind of hates everything about his surroundings. That's how, how I kind of picture Ben Shapiro, like... Uh, I think there was a period of time where Ben Shapiro would actually sort of make me mad, right? And yeah. he would, because he would say something that was, I thought was actually like bad or harmful. And now it's just kind of like this, you know, him like, he watches videos of a trans person. He's like, well, that's weird, you know? And then you're just <laughs> like, well, that's like, you've kind of lost it, you know? Like, you don't, yeah. you're not saying anything. Like, in a it, way, you've delightfully pointed out that he's on autopilot when you said the right. thing about the heat you posted the other day that you were just like, he's going to have to hard pivot to liberal. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's my that's my thinking for him, which is that like he's not, you know, like the right now is so strange and that it's really for young people, right? I mean the online right. Like it's for people like this guy Nate Hockman who's like 24 who was DeSantis's speechwriter who who made that like Nazi video about Ron DeSantis, right? And like this is like a young person who uh is very deeply immersed in meme culture and also is just trying to offend everybody in a way that Ben Shapiro never would have when Ben Shapiro is like 25 or 20, like he would have never done that. Right. Like he wouldn't have posted a Nazi video. Um, He would have just like been like, Oh, I'm owning you with logic. Right. And like, it's weird because now like that type of, Oh, I'm owning you with logic. You know, facts don't care about your feelings thing. Yeah. It's so center. Like it's so centrist and it's so, it feels so old fashioned in a way that um i don't know what ben's gonna do right like i think he has to just become a liberal i think he just has to like come out and write his essay in the atlantic and being like i was a conservative you know it's the opposite of what you but but, yeah yeah here's why i'm voting for joe biden right and then have his little have his little moment and then just transition over like jennifer rubin who's a columnist at the wall street journal did a similar thing now she's like one of the most strident voices you know in sort of boomer liberal media wow. and so um yeah, i don't know like, i foresee a similar thing for ben although maybe <laughs> yeah. he'll just retire um right. and i think he do you has get a lot of money. do you get interesting interaction on your twitter because i know that like as someone on twitter i find that you can tell you know a hundred thousand people to click a link and like four of them will Right. So, but do you get angry interaction with your stuff on Twitter or do you get people who are like rah, rah, and do you care? Do you even read it anymore? Like the interactions? Oh yeah, I read them. It's, you know, I don't want to lie here. I definitely read them and I, sometimes <laughs> they get me mad. You know, I was, my wife can tell when I'm mad and furiously typing responses <laughs> on Twitter and yeah. she always, she always kind of tries to intervene, but it doesn't really work. You know, like I was just in. I don't know. I was like in, I spent the last month visiting my sister in Hawaii. And so I was getting ready to go to the beach and I'd gotten this Twitter fight. And, um, (laughs) and then when I like kind of snapped back to my senses, like it had been like 30 minutes and they're all just waiting for me. And I was just like, (laughs) and I was like, what is wrong with with me? I'm like about to go to the beach in Hawaii on this vacation. And just sitting here arguing about housing policy with someone, <laughs> with someone, with someone that I hate, you know? Just like, um, so yeah, I do, I'm not immune to the negative sides of it. I'm sure at some level I enjoy it, you know, but, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting I, place. It's I an do not have place. people. My friend, um, Mina Kimes has like, uh, like an entire army of people who will, you know, stick up for her or yes, will yell at people who attack her or will like, you know, enthusiastically. I don't have anything approaching <laughs> that. I think I have three dudes. So it's like, I'll eight. start, I'll join if you want. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know what to do on there anymore. Yeah. So I might as well. <laughs> hey, back um, off, Jay. Back yeah. off, Jay. Yeah, that would be great. If you're Jay's like, army. Yeah. I, I remember when uh, it was, this was maybe four or five years ago. And, and like you, I, I was traveling with my wife we were on vacation in like wales and it's new year's eve and i got in a twitter fight with somebody and (laughs) it just it just started as like as you described it just like you know you're waiting for what they say so you can come back over the top and then somehow as we were shouting at each other it came out that this guy's 
grandfather had done the artwork for Jethro Tull's Aqualung album. <laughs> and like, so that came out and it was, then it was like, we were kind of yet still yelling at each other, but I had to pause and sort of respect that. And then it was all mended. It just, it's like all a paper tiger. Like, you know, we know this, but still somehow it makes us so upset. Yeah, I always try and st- I have this f- fantasy all the time when I'm getting an argument on there that I can steer it to a place of understanding in like seven oh. tweets later when I'm not mad anymore. But it very rarely happens, you know. <laughs> right. Um, and I probably should just not get in the arguments. But it's, I don't know. It's I guess it's fun. I feel like some of the doomerism around Twitter is kind of silly. You know, it's... Uh, I think it's probably a very bad thing for it's been bad for my life and it's also I think social media in general is very bad for people but you know I don't think it's it's still just kind of bad in the same way right, right it's right. just more in the guy who owns the company is just more annoying <laughs> um, <laughs> <and> the, <laughs> but uh I don't know Elon is not why I like wasted my family's time in Hawaii you know, right. getting, out, <laughs> getting an argument like it's not his fault that's my fault yeah right. um well, I've never really heard you like a movie or anything, but one movie that you talk about sort of endlessly over the years is the movie You Can Count On Me. <laughs> oh, wow. So can you explain why this movie, in your opinion, is the greatest movie out it's there so and good. seemingly the most meaningful to you? Oh, man. I don't I know. It's movie. sort of a bit, but I do really love that movie. <laughs> I mean, I think that um, there's... Uh, it was because I, you know, like before I just thought that like, you know, I would just say, oh, I like Kung Fu Hustle and because I really like Stephen Chow's movies. Like that's, I yeah. think, my favorite movie. And then I really like Do the Right Thing. And then I was like, uh, for diversity's sake, I should pick the whitest movie. <laughs> it <laughs> is pretty white. You got it. You nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> but, I love but that movie. I really do love that movie. I think it's great. And I think that, you know, there's something about it where I feel like because Kenneth Lornigan was writing it, you know, he's a playwright and you can kind of tell in these movies that he's a playwright has a very interesting effect, I think. Um, maybe not so much in uh, Manchester by the Sea, but certainly in the other two films, right? Um, that there is a part of it where every scene feels like a play set and that um the drama is sort of put out in a way that's not exactly cinematic but i think is much more theater based and i thought for that film it works really beautifully and i think laura linney is great in it and i think that there's a type of like uh like he really nails what the sense of duty that siblings have to one another after a tragedy is you know and and how they express it it just felt very real to me um and yeah, I love that. <laughs> I do love that movie. But yeah, it's kind of a bit at the, <laughs> yeah, at the same time. <laughs> because so I don't really, um, I think if you're like, you can only watch one movie for the rest of your life, it would not, you know, it would not be. That one? Count on no, probably not. <laughs> yeah. Anyone who said that, I would just be like, wow. It would, that, I would rather do that than watch Manchester by the Sea over and over. Well, yeah. Manchester by the <laughs> Sea being, nut punch. From, being from there, you just go, Manchester is, that's where like, people who are executives at Fleet Bank live and then they take the train into Boston. Like, there's no agony in Manchester by the sea. My first girlfriend was from Manchester by the sea and they had an awesome debate team uh, in Massachusetts. He would know he's a national champion. Well, this is... I I believe Jay, are you just someone who's interested in debate, or you? I would assume from your knowledge and fascination with it, you did high school debate. Right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh that was wow, like the thing I did through. So um, we got a sidebar here. I'm going to get back to the Twitter right. stuff because 
this is ongoing on this podcast, <laughs> is I was a very highly ranked national debater. I, I won the St. Mark's Invitational. Oh, in, wow. And what? In, thank you. And oh, wow. <laughs> thank you. In you policy debate. I won it in <laughs> 1990. My partner and I. Lexington High. Oh, you're at the Lexington. Okay. Yeah. 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 If you've ever heard Goldblatt Santucci, uh, that was our team. By the way, and this, I, and is, this is wait, bolstering your now, street cred. You shut up, Al. You shut up. Someone finally understands what the fuck I'm talking about. So you shut the fuck up. This is big for you. What year is this? Like... 1990 or something. Yes. Oh, here uh, oh. so here, John Goldblatt. That's my name. Here is this is the 1990 Heart of Texas. JC yeah, has just yeah, put it yeah. up. <laughs> Goldblatt Santucci, the last people standing at the end. And I, I want to point out because, and then I want to get into your experience with this because it's right. such a fascinating. And you ninth speaks. That's pretty good. Yeah. Wow. Listen. Listen. <laughs> I was first affirmative. Okay, this is now we're just going to get one. Oh my god! Yeah. So it's harder to get speaker to get. points yeah, yeah. as first. Now yeah. I want to point out another thing I did, and this was in, I believe, the semifinals. And I want to just get your unvarnished reaction <laughs> when I say the words "no prep one ar" in the semifinals. Oh yeah, that's the does most that send ball- chills down your spine? <laughs> yeah, it's the most baller thing you can do in policy debate. <laughs> yeah, you, you, I've never. I was a two A, but you know, um, yeah. The the most intimidating thing you can do in high school and college policy debate is after the after the uh, one and R, you stand up and you say no prep one A. Oh. Yeah. So for people who have no idea what we're talking about, go. basically, <laughs> in a debate, there's. 12, there's a point where there's 12 minutes of negative speaking, and then the affirmative team has four minutes to, re, to rebut it. So, so basically, what normally what happens is you're allotted a certain amount of prep time. In those days, it was eight minutes. And you generally take the lion's share before that first affirmative rebuttal. But there was a man named John Schaefer who went to Edgemont High School, and the rumors of a no prep 1AR began to spread. <laughs> and I dedicated my life to figuring out how is this possible. And I realized that the way to do it was you don't write down anything they're saying. You simply write their response. So I want to paint a scene for you. It's the semifinals. They're speaking. The 2NR is ending. I'm writing. I'm standing up. <laughs> As the time is running out on the 2NR... I'm standing in his peripheral vision so he knows, like... <laughs> He's ready to go. All this shit that you're saying is so easy to beat that I, I don't need any prep time. And then a literal gasp went over the room. Anyway, this was the greatest moment of my life. Uh, and you won the round, so yeah. I won the round, won the tournament. And, wow. and then, I, and then I, I, like you, it sounds like in high school, I had a nervous breakdown and I never debated again. Oh. Yeah. Um, we can yeah. get to that. But so I, what's your experience with debate? Like where well, you, I went to like, a, you know, unlike Lexington, which is one of the most storied programs in the country, right? Like, uh, I, thanks to this guy, our high school did not, we had a good high school team in North Carolina, but it was very in state. We didn't have a coach and that was sort of the pride of the program that it was student run for, you know, many, many years. Oh, cool. And so I got to my sophomore year and I had that year, I think my partner and I won the state championship and I was like, all right, and we didn't, lo- I don't think we lost around that year in state. Wow. And so, uh, I was like, well, I have to do 
something next and maybe I'll just debate at the places like St. Mark's. And so then I went to Dartmouth for debate camp. And, These are summer um, debate for our listeners <laughs> right. that people who are really into this go away for yeah. three weeks in the summer. They live at colleges with other debate kids and research one topic all summer. It's wow. really, yeah, I met your coach, Les Phillips, there. Uh, my oh, roommate yeah. actually went to Lexington. Um, his that? name's uh, Ron John Roy. He actually is a, he like writes a really fun um, finance newsletter. He, uh, he was, he actually, he wasn't my roommate, but he, you know, he was my friend at camp. And you meet You're all younger these kids. than I am. But right, yeah. right. So this was uh, 1996 or something. And like the, most famous debater was that guy Steve Lahotsky, right? He was a couple of years after you at Lexington, I think, right? Um, I never knew. Him. Okay. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I've graduated. <laughs> I, I had a nervous breakdown. Graduated. Never judged okay. around. Never yeah, looked back. Yeah. Well, never that's probably to my coach. extremely healthy, honestly. So then I, after that, I was like ready to go. And I don't know. You know, it's interesting because I think, like at the time, I wasn't doing very well in school. But I was so dedicated to this one thing because I kind of felt like, oh, these I, I felt it's similar to how I feel it felt about uh, my journalism career, which was that like I went to this camp and all these kids went to these schools that had these long traditions. And some of the schools like St. Mark's or like, uh, oh, I don't know, like even like a school like Isidore Newman or something like that. Basically, whatever city you're in, this is the mo this is like the fanciest high school in that city. Right. St. Mark's right. is where George Bush George Bush went, right? Like, it's like, yeah. uh, it's like if you're in That's Texas. where they shot um, the Wes Anderson, Bill Murray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rushmore. Uh, yeah, Rushmore, yeah. right. Um, and so I was like, I'll show all these private school kids, you know? And then, <laughs> yeah. uh, I basically spent my entire junior year abusing my partner, you know, being like, why don't you care as much as me? You know, which, which in retrospect was horrible for him because he was just like, bro, we win every round in state. Why is that? Like, I just want to chill and smoke weed at the tournament and have fun, you know? And I was like, and I would just be like, no, we are, you know, we're going to fly to Texas or whatever. Right. Or like, yeah. we're going to Atlanta. We're going to go to Emory or whatever. And, and yeah, we had, like, we had a big falling out and then I was like, I kind of realized that I didn't care about this thing anymore. And then I just didn't do it my senior year. But, um, yeah, I, I think it was mostly just giant burnout, but, yeah. um, was the falling out part of why you stopped? Like, yeah, was it just I felt like, you know, you have these moments where you kind of realize that you're being a monster, you know, yeah. and that, um, yeah. It's even more sad when it's about high school debate, right? Where you're just like, <laughs> right, yeah. I've basically alienated one of my best friends, and um, and my grades are terrible, right. and I don't, I'm not really, I have no social life. I just go home and I prepare files and read about, you know, I don't even remember what the topic was this year. I think it was, it wasn't healthcare. It was, uh, I think it was China. Healthcare was like my that. junior year. There's no way it was. Healthcare. Yeah, it wasn't healthcare. I think it was. <laughs> I think it was China, right? And just like sit yeah. there and read policy papers about China and you pretend you understand them. And you're like, oh, right. yeah, of course, you know. Like, of course. <laughs> I can just about this. Yeah, there will be a, you know, increased hege hegemony will lead to a conflict in the Spratly Islands. You know, oh. And they're just like, well, obviously. Obviously, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to win you're, this Then you're like, and where is Hong Kong? I had that same moment of a ruined friendship with a partner that was later repaired, but my partner, my freshman year partner, uh, was Evan Jones, who famously played Cheddar Bob in the movie Eight Mile. Oh, really? What? Yeah. Really? Who, oh the guy, God. the other white rap guy right, who right. shot himself in the dick. That was my freshman year <laughs> oh my debate partner. But so 
I want to move on now to to the loneliest Americans and what is I would call it like a sociological autobiography, and and because just hearing about your debate experience, and and sort of reading like your recent work on affirmative action and and this decision that came down is is part of this like personally informed. Like, do you feel like you kind of got the short end of the stick going to this public school where you, had you had the resources behind you in debate, and debate makes you think this way because you you look around and you go. I would feel like the school I went to was a public school. And right. in retrospect, it's one of the best public schools in the country. It's almost a private school. Like my kids go to a real public school. This is a private school. But was there the sense that you had been deprived of something that you didn't have a coach and you didn't have these resources and you were competing against these people who did? Uh, and do you think that's informed at all your your sort of uh, uh, take on affirmative action? Oh, huh, that's an interesting. I don't think so, but I, you know, I went to Chapel Hill High School, which uh, is similar. You know, it's not quite Lexington High School, but it's you know in the state of North Carolina, it's probably the best public high school because uh, it's all you know university kids, and um, uh, that doesn't mean that like it was such a huge high school. I think it was about four thousand kids when I went there. That obviously wow. you have a lot of different types of families there, and Chapel Hill in nineteen ninety six was not as incredibly wealthy as it is now so it's a little bit different but but yeah I I did feel I think I've always sort of felt uh identified with you know being on the short end of the stick which even when it's not appropriate for me to feel that way but I don't think it really informed my thoughts on affirmative action I think affirmative action was a topic where I went in because I was you know I was the Asian guy at the New York Times magazine and they wanted me to write about this case and I was very resistant of it at first even in the first article I wrote about it I basically have this passage where I'm just like annoyed that they asked me to do it right. you know <laughs> um, because I'm talking to this kid who went to Bronx science you know this uh, Chinese American kid and I'm like sitting there and he's like kind of annoying to me because he's trying so hard to get into college and then I sort of think about it. Well, I'm actually just kind of annoyed that I got to sign this article, you know? So, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I went in I, to that thinking basically like all sort of progressive people that this was a program that um, helped people and that um, it was that it was virtuous, you know? And I still think that race-based preferences are necessary. I think they're good. and But I think that the way in which they're practiced at these Ivy League institutions is actually quite destructive and and it was kind of, uh, there's a philosopher, Olafemi Taiwo, who came up with this idea of elite capture in which like all social justice questions get ultimately captured by elites who use them to sort of, you know, I don't know, arbitrage out or to like sort of litigate interpersonal or inner office type of disputes, right? Now, this is most prevalent in the academy, but it's certainly true in your industry, right? In, in, in Hollywood, mm -hmm. that uh, every measure of or any type of language that can be used to justify a certain type of job-based thing will be marshaled to try and create the type of effect that they want. I think for <clears throat> me, <clears throat> one of the things that was interesting as somebody who was always following Asian American politics, which was that this question of Asian representation was always a central question, you know, for most of my 20s and 30s, which was like, why don't we have more people in Hollywood? And I and that was always sort of put out by saying, like, well, if people don't see themselves in mass culture, then, you know, they there's bad psychological effects to that. Right. Or they don't feel like they have a belonging in this country and that the answer to every single problem was like, well, we just need more Asian representation in Hollywood. 
And um, I didn't really think about it very much when I was in my 20s. But once I got to my 30s, I was like, well, why is this the only thing we talk about? You know, there's like poverty in our communities. There's, uh, you know, like I did the 2004 housing crisis or two, the, the housing crisis was like, I think Korean Americans had the most foreclosures of any group in America, for example, like that was never mentioned, right? Everything was just about Hollywood representation. And I realized that the reason why this is happening is because the people who write the type of articles that get turned into this type of culture idea or academics, especially all come from certain class, right? They all come mm -hmm. from a certain class of people. That's how they get to those spots. They go to elite institutions and that in the end, what you know, their vision of social justice is contained within their class concerns, which is for a lot of them, hey, how do we break into Hollywood, for example, right? Like, and, mm -hmm. you know, I think that was a real problem for a long time. And that what happens is that you kind of balloon this one class concern, right, into everything. Yeah. And that the language that is used to actually justify real problems, right? For example, like, you know, I was always, like I told you before, I was very obsessed with, uh, you know, racism in the criminal justice system, for example, right? Yeah. Like when you start using that type of language to talk about like hiring practices at some of the most elite institutions in the country or use them in, even in Hollywood, right? To talk about um, the way in which like Hollywood operates, like, I think it's a justified concern, but I think that the language is probably not appropriate, right? Like, to use. Like, the ideas aren't appropriate. Like, there, there's forms of suffering in this country, uh, forms of immiseration that are much more important, I would say, than, like, who sits on a panel at Columbia mm -hmm. University, right? Or yeah. who gets tenure at one of these places or um, who gets in a writer's room at a, on a television show. And um, the way I think that affirmative action and college has sort of mirrored a lot of that, right? It's only practiced at a very small number of institutions because the vast majority of colleges let in the vast majority of students, right? Like it's like a 90% acceptance rate. You don't use affirmative action when you have a 90% acceptance rate because everyone who applies gets in. That's most colleges in America. Most college students go to those types of schools. And so when it's just within a certain tiny amount of elite of students who can kind of get to these schools and when all the students at those schools are very wealthy, right? Like I think Harvard has more students in the top 1% than in the bottom 60%, right? Yeah. Like what are we really talking about, right? Like what, why is this such a huge concern? And is this even like the right way to think about any type of equality or any type of egalitarian future justice um, to sort of hyper-focus on how these elite institutions like the representation within these elite institutions, like perhaps it's better to just say, A, maybe these elite institutions shouldn't exist in the same way that they should ha that they have. Maybe they shouldn't have this power. Or you can just say, I don't care about those at all, you know, but it should be one of those two options. It shouldn't be like, oh, well, if we can just get the black and Latino percentage at Harvard up to like 26% of the students, then we've, you know, then we're going to have a multicultural elite that comes out. And it's just like, why is the multicultural elite good? Right. Like, um, <laughs> right. Like the question. problem is the elite part. Right. Like the problem yeah, is, is right. that it's like, it's the same joke where you're just like, oh, this bomb was dropped by a woman. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> like, Thank God for feminism. Right. Like, you know, like it's uh, there's there's that. So that's that's a very long winded way of answering your question. I don't think it was because of yeah, debate, but I do think you always try and triangulate yourself into what uh, you feel like is the correct position. And I think that when people defend these institutions, they should think about like, why am I defending Harvard? You know? Right. Um, and the answer is you should probably almost never defend Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, wow. Wow. 
So Incredible. I like I, you've been really generous with your time. I don't want to keep you too long, but I did. I did want to like. I mean, I I could keep going on that, but I I want to get to this this recent New Yorker piece uh, you wrote about tennis notes on losing because this is oh, something yeah. that I love as someone who just turned fifty, you're you're yeah. going through something very interesting. I think and like talking to you for the last hour, you know, again playing armchair psychoanalyst, I, I would <laughs> go. This is someone who. Is a very competitive person, very intelligent person, driven, wants to succeed in all these ways, and you finally found an outlet where you don't have much hope of being good, and so you're reveling in the feeling of allowing yourself to be bad. Is this something that, you know, you feel... Um, <laughs> how, how do you feel? Do you think this is a sign of maturity, a sign of giving <laughs> up, or how, how do you... Re- or is it just that, hey, I like tennis? Um, well I yeah my 20s and in my 20s I went surfing a lot you know Um, I would go every day and I was pretty bad at it and um, and that was like a type of humiliation that I kind of enjoyed because you know I live in I lived in the Bay Area and the waves are extremely inaccessible Uh, ocean beach big and cold and hard to get out yeah. Um, and so I would just go every day and I'd just get punished and then I would get out and I'd be like, I feel alive, you know, <laughs> but like sometimes you paddle for like 45 minutes there and you can't get out, you know, yeah. even I was in pretty good shape and I, you know, I went every day for like two years. So by the end of that, you're like, okay, you know, right. um, yeah. but, uh, tennis is, you don't lose in surfing, you know, like, right. like nobody really cares that you're bad. Right. And like, it's an individual thing and you go out there and you think like, I am you know, I am one with nature and this is the ocean and I'm like, uh, you know, I don't have my phone on me and I feel, I feel at peace for the first, like it's a meditative yeah, the, experience. The best surfer is the one who has the best time. Yeah, that's true though, you know? Sure. <laughs> it was just something that like a kind of idiot said to me that you go, All right. this idiot is smarter than I am. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly, exactly. It is funny how like uh, that stuff is true and then you get out there and the only thing you think about is, wow, that guy is much better than me. You know? Yeah, no, I was watching a guy yesterday. I mean, I was doing my normal like, you know, Frankenstein mummy on a board, lurch, right. get up, fall over. And then this... You know, this guy with a giant snake tattoo is just going all over the wave, 360-ing, you know. And I'm going like, I have a degree. I'm employed in show business, you know. And it's like, I would just trade it all. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that part is no question. Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I was just in Hawaii and I was, uh, you know, you see like 12-year-olds flying around and just like, God damn it, you know. <laughs> Well, walk us through because uh, the New Yorker is like fascinating to people, I think. And and you you work at this place; it's a you know legendary magazine. How, for, as a writer, how how does it work? Like, how do you, you how do you go from I have an idea for a story to that story is in the New Yorker? Oh, ooh, uh, well, I was I worked there in 2014 as an editor, right? And I remember I was very excited, obviously, to work there, and I went there, and I. Um, it was interesting because it's a lot of the question, the, the lore of the place in some ways still exists in some ways is lore, you know? And so they would talk about how Mr. Sean, right? Like Miss William Sean, who was the sort of legendary editor of the New Yorker for many years would have uh, each story out on a table and there would be all these pencils and people walk by and kind of give their suggestions, these types of things. Right. And yeah. you have these 
legendary copy chiefs, right? Some of whom are quite famous now, um, who knew every single style thing and, you know, were sort of geniuses in their own right. And those, that's all there. It's all very exciting. But at the same time, you know, it's a lot of people in an office who are sort of trying to get work done, right, at, at some level as well. And so I think the story pitching process is very similar in that, like, the more you realize that it's a bunch of people who have certain incentives that um, and you your job as a writer is to help the is not to help that person meet their incentives. But the best path forward is that if you can kind of help that person make their job easy, then that's I think the best you know, that's the best advice I have, which is like, you, you think about your editor. And if you're, if you're an editor, and you have all this responsibility, and you are afraid that you're going to get embarrassed by in front of your boss, right, which is fear that every employee has, um, what are you going to respond the most to? Well, you're going to respond the most to something where a you don't have to do all that much work, B, where uh, you don't have to worry too much about problems, right? Like the, I'm not talking about political problems, I'm talking about like, you know, like reporting problems or something like that. Right. Like, um, and see, you are probably going to respond to something that makes you look good. Right. And so I don't think that people should form their writing careers around such sort of cynical ideas or kind of gamified ways of thinking about writing. I really don't think that, but I do think that if you want to have a career, writing for places like the New Yorker, you kind of have to think that way sometimes. Right. And so like at the beginning, you talked about television writing being like, Oh, you write for, you just kind of hope it passes. Right. You hope to sort of produce the EPs or something like that, or the network doesn't give you notes that make you want to tear. Well, you know, it's, I just want to course correct a little bit. You know that no matter what you do, there's going to be the same amount of notes. Right. Uh, right, So in, in a sense, you talk about gamifying, you're incentivized to hold back your good stuff for the second round, because then you can show, oh, that thing that you said didn't work. We've got this great fix. You then present it as new, but yeah, please continue. Mm. That is different, actually, in terms, you know, like, I think there are times when you just fly something through, you know, and it doesn't yeah. really have that much different. And those are good times. And you kind of want your edit, you kind of want to present that to your editor. And so it's very basic things, I think, in terms of how stories get approved or how writers kind of come on board at places like this. Uh, I don't, I'm not as good as it, at it as I used to be, but when I felt very like my career was in a lot of jeopardy and that I might not make it anymore, right? Like that one bad story could sort of kick me out of the industry. I mean, you know, like it's like really unacceptable, for example, to like turn in drafts with like a typo in them, right? Like you yeah. shouldn't. Um, like one typo and they yeah, just go, yeah, like so for years or to blow deadlines. So I I don't know. Like I don't think I blew a deadline for eight years or something like that, right? And so if you turn things in on time and you show that you've like really cared to present a good draft of the thing you're writing, then the editors notice that and they respond as they should, right? And so it's kind of basic just professionalism stuff at some level. And I think that the thing that people get locked into is this idea that because it's a storied institution like the New Yorker or like the Times or something like that, that what actually makes a difference is a sort of spark of genius, right? Or something that nobody's ever thought of. And that's just not true, right? Like it's basically like the editor's job is to try and get however many pieces you're going to write um, either on the page or in the magazine. And uh, they're not like the thing that they don't want is like a, writer who's convinced they're a genius or they have a genius idea who has no idea how to execute them, it will fight them on every single edit and will turn in like 
an idea that is actually not all that ingenious, you know? Right, right. So uh, kind of trying your best to be like, I'm a professional and um, this is my idea. Here's the reporting for it. I've already done this percentage of the reporting for it. Here's how we get from point A to B and here's how I'm basically thinking about it. That's like the best way to, to go about it, which is just like, I'm presenting this to you. This is an opportunity for you. And you don't have to really do that much work on it because I like I've got it because I already know how to do this thing like that. That's I think that's the best way to sort of present yourself, even if you have to fake it, you know, like right. you should fake it in that direction. You shouldn't fake it. in like I am the next undiscovered genius of, of American <laughs> journalism. Yeah, like, right. Goldie, this work. is this is I, your, this is I, your spirit animal, because you have you have said this about TV writing all along, like literally so much of what Jay just said is your philosophy on television writing. Well, I, I, I saw you about to speak, and I thought what you were going to say, and I'm shocked you didn't meet me halfway, was that, oh, so it's not like shattered glass where you leap up on the table and start yelling about start juked going. micronics. Yeah, that's, show that's me the money. That's what I wanted money. the answer show to Show me the money. Well, I was, I, of course I was thinking that, too, because, uh, Jay, I don't know. Probably we're shatheads. We're yeah, glass holes. Goldie yeah. and yeah, we're glass holes. Go, on our top 10 movie list, I'm sure somewhere around 10 is shattered glass. I don't know if that movie had an impact on you as well. No, um, no but... Um, I don't know. I think that those types of thing, stories are, are much more interesting to people outside of the industry. Um, yeah. oh, interesting. But yeah. inside, it's like, uh, it just seems almost incomprehensible, you know, like there, uh, that one could do that. And it just almost, it, it's so bizarre that it almost, you know, you kind of, it's one of those things you almost write off to like a, some sort of mental illness or something like that. Because right? <laughs> yeah, well, it feels way outside of the realm of what, is okay. Now look, people get caught doing little things that I think are generally, you know, being lazy or maybe like not really knowing how things work for when they're young, but like full on fabulous, like that's pretty rare. And it's like, I get why the public is so fascinated with it. And, um, the thing that's always interesting to me is how like the response to it almost seems random. Like, I mean, you grew up in Boston area. Remember, like, Mike Barnacle made up, sure. like... Uh, yes, like, yep. he grabbed like, Carlin. George right, Carlin. right. And that was, you know, Mike Barnacle making up, what, I think, two kids who had cancer or something like that, right? Like, just fabricating them. Wow. Um, it hurt his career, but, like, you know, at some point, like, you know, like, I don't know, at some, I, think, I remember, I think it was at Grantland, and there were talks, like, maybe we should reach out to Mike Barnacle. Like, it hadn't hurt his career that much, right? right. And then... Well, if he like, lied about cancer, it's, it's like, well, was he really angry about potholes that other time? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But people like, I don't know, Stephen Glass, Jason Blair, right? Like, it's like, it becomes this international scandal. And I guess maybe it is because uh, of the publications or something like that. But I don't know. Like, Stephen Glass's stuff was all, it wasn't like it was in the Times, right? It was all in the New Republic or something like that. And yeah. so... Um, I'm not really sure why certain ones go super viral and end people's careers and some don't. Jonah, Jonah, um, oh, I'm forgetting his last name, the guy who made up the Bob Dylan lyrics, right? Like that sort of ended him after like an amazing run. And, you know, I didn't quite understand why that one was such a big deal, except that people feel very passionately about Bob Dylan, I guess, you know? Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, Jay, it's, been a real pleasure talking to you. I, yes. I really appreciate you yeah. taking the time because I know you have so many Twitter fights you should be <laughs> getting back to. But yeah, I want uh, to. Just... 
Oh, I just want to say please. one thing. Um, yes. as um, I I have been reading. I have not finished the Loneliest Americans, and and talking to you today when reading your book, I'm, you know, I find you to be to be so smart and articulate, and you make you make critical thinking seem so easy to come from your brain to the words you speak and the words you've written. And I just find that completely inspiring and understanding that you come from like a debate background. So that in itself has taught you to think on your toes and to be articulate with your words. And like in my mind, I was thinking, was this something that just came naturally? Or is it something that you worked on your entire life and maybe didn't even realize this is where you got to. And I don't know if there's a question here, but I find it just <laughs> extremely inspiring to talk to you and that you've taken the time to be with us. And I really that's, appreciate that's, it. Sounds like Thank you. That's very, yeah, I appreciate guests. that. Um, it's, I could not do a stand up one AR. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Goldie, I love that now. I'm going to remember that term. Yes. I have, well, I have well, major respect for that. Jay, when you're, when you're ready to take all this, intelligence and integrity and public clout you've built up and absolutely sell out in the show business. <laughs> I want to help you do that <laughs> because <laughs> I think you. you would be fantastic here. And I think when you're looking for a final act of how do I go out in a blaze of money, I, I think that this, this place would be great for you. Uh, Thank you. So his book, The Loneliest Americans, his Twitter, what's your, is it Jay, just, just Jay Caspian Kang? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anything he does, The New Yorker is great, uh, always thought-provoking, and, and we just so much appreciate you coming on, Jay. Thanks. Hey, thank you. Thank I appreciate you, it as well. This yeah. is great. That was awesome. Thank you. Oh, God, that was a great. Goldie, you did such a fantastic yeah. job with that interview. That was yes, awesome. Thanks. You asked awesome great too. questions, and he had amazing answers. I was so impressed by both of you yes. and your standing debate moment. G yeah. gave, me chills. <laughs> gave me a newfound respect. for <laughs> Finally <laughs> found an audience for that. I know. That was Thank great. God. He was just was right so on top of every reference. That was great. Um, all right. Let's get to the section of our show we call Top 5. Top 5. Oh, we sound great. Goldie, this was your topic. Tell the folks. Yes. I, I mean, this I, I really screwed up. This is an almost impossible topic. Mm -hmm. It was great. But it's the top five greatest songs ever. <laughs> yep. And it just made you realize, like, it's just so difficult because songs do different things for you. And to say these are the greatest, it's, it's not, it, it, you can't compare art, first of all, but then it's impossible to. Right. But yeah. here was my attempt. Yes. Okay. Number five, everybody dance now. Everybody dance now. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. You're you telling hear me it? right away you're not taking this You seriously. know what the song wants you to do? <laughs> yes, that's true. That's they true. ask you effectively, and you do it. <laughs> no, they tell you. They tell yes. you. Er, 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 er. Uh, number four. Unchained melody. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a, a great one. one. I, I gave that. I gave that a thought. Wow. Number so. three, Van Halen's Unchained. Oh, oh come on. <laughs> I mean, I love that song. You're, and but it's, you're it's, just it's, doing a thing now. I don't. I'm not. But of course, I'm doing a <laughs> thing. I'm saying topic. what I think are the, my favorite songs. I don't know. I realize I don't know. I shouldn't have done this. <laughs> you did number this. two, my wedding dance song. God only knows. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Yes. And number one, I mean, it, it's down to a lot, but I had to say Kokomo. 
No. <laughs> we called this. We called it. We were talking off ca- off camera. We're like, I hope Goldie. I said, I hope Goldie doesn't do coke. I was like, I God. think he will. Damn it. <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry. Right. I just I, I apologize for the topic. I realize I like, the topic here is impossible. Okay, so it's my, my I want to hear you do a real job. Then this is so my turn. And I realized, as I mentioned to JC before we started recording, I think I had a distinct leg up on you two on this. Not for the reasons you might think, but because I was able to get stoned and drunk and listen to a bunch of music and like okay. really it really drove it home. Like the ones that I had a big emotional reaction to. Okay, so okay. here we go. Number five is a song called Stardust, sung by Nat King Cole, which I oh. think is honestly one of the best five songs of all time. If you, and I played lovely. it on the porch again to some other slightly drunk people, and they had never heard it, and they were blown away. So give that okay. one a listen. Okay. Number four is The Tracks of My Tears by Smokey oh, Robinson. That's a good one. Well, Love you know that. he's now called Vapey Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Last joke of the day. Um, Number three is a song called A Whiter Shade of Pale. I love that song. Love that song. Love that song. And it has the side benefit of being John Lennon's favorite song. Apparently when he got the record, he had a record player in his limo, which I can't imagine how that worked, but he played it like a (laughs) hundred times in a row. It's just Yoko having to sit on the armrest. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Shove off, shove off, Yoko. Uh, Number two for me is a song called Paranoid Android by Radiohead. Wow. Love that song. I think it's their their day in the life. Yeah, I can say that. Uh, And number one, if you heard many moons ago... We did our favorite Beatles song, and the top song on that list for me is the top song on this list for me, which is Here Comes the Sun. Oh, that's, that's a good one. Yes. It was a good list. Um, yeah. It was very fun, very fun going through that stuff. Yeah, I agree with you, Goldie. Extremely difficult. And as I was telling Alec uh, before we started, I was saying that you could ask me next week and the list would be different. Yep. So uh, it's definitely yep. like where you are in your life or whatever you're in that moment. So my the number... last ones you heard that were any good. Yeah, <laughs> <Yes>. exactly. <laughs> um, now, number five may seem like a joke, but I am obsessed with this song. It is We Are the World. I yeah. Just, it's great. I, I love that song, I'm, too. I love this song. Yeah. Um, number Very f- powerful choir. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, number four is Hallelujah. By Leonard Cohen. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I love it. It was uh, one of my best friends sang it at our wedding at uh, Stu and I when we got married. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, number three seems like it's very dark, but it is a hauntingly beautiful and for me very relatable song called "Hurt" by Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. Um, it's Johnny Cash version is also yeah, great. Very, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Number two. <laughs> <laughs> I can't move my mouth. <laughs> Biden's version is very touching, too. <laughs> Number two is Love is in Need of Love, Stevie Wonder. That is I don't know that. I don't know it off the top of my head. It's, a, it's played a I lot. Considered, I considered Superstition, because I think uh, that's a great, great it's song. A good, it's a good song, yes. Yeah. And we have crossover, Goldie. My oh. number one is God Only Knows. Oh, look at that. Thank God you didn't say Kokomo. (laughs) I was was ready to just unplug everything. 
throw down the headset. Uh, well, that's a great list. And so, JC, you. you're up next week. What do we got? Okay, it's also, again, music-related. It is it. top five so- walkout songs. Songs to walk out to. It could be... I, I saw this... Uh, a boxer, what is his name? Terrence Bud Crawford. Oh, he walked yeah. out with Gold, Eminem. Goldie loves this. Yeah. yeah. And also when we had Justin Halpern, he had his his walkout songs. Yes, and I've been right. meaning to have this topic. So what you would play, whatever, if you're a boxer or a baseball player, whatever you, sport you wanted that Goldie's to be. Goldie's been thinking about this his whole life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I might have to say these are the, also say this is a specific situation I would do it in. Because Perfect. to me, there's a, a huge difference com- running out as a baseball closer. Yes. Than coming in as a boxer. I love yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Love yeah. Is love that, if, if you're good with that, I'm good with that. That's a great topic. Okay. And a reminder again that next week we're going to be talking to the very talented comedian and impressionist Matt Friend. We're psyched for that. Um, but now let's end the show as we do every week on a high note. Oh, Tom and Max. It's an eighth of a second longer each time. I'm yeah. convinced of it. Uh, JC, do you want to start us on the yeah. high note today? Yes. Um, I think I'm going to do what we what we always say we're not allowed to do, but uh, I loved Goldie's Get with uh, Jay Caspian Kang. What a special treat. And he's funny and intelligent and inspiring. So thanks, Goldie. Agree. Goldie, I got to break... I got to break my own rule too, because I, you know, I've been a fan of his for so long and it was just, I'm a fan of so few things, you know, this, yeah. that it was a real thrill to just talk to him. And he was as awesome and cool as smart as I thought he would be. Yeah. Uh, I didn't care for him. No, I'm like kidding. I thought, I thought he was awesome. I'm going to piggyback with your, with you guys. Cause it was great. And it really reminded me of uh, when we talked to Pete Holmes Yeah, uh, and yeah. just like the Pete, the, such thoughtful answers um it was great it was awesome having him um he was awesome you two are always awesome i want to thank everyone out there for listening and we will talk to you again next week that was fun next week Thank you. Thank you.